0: I graduated from Divinity School in May, was ordained in June, was interviewed and offered a job here at this church in July, and by September had began work here, and about three months in, I noticed people treated me differently. I mean, like, no one ever told me a joke. I don't mean like the newsletter bloopers, I mean a real joke. The kind that makes you blush because it's slightly inappropriate. No one ever told me a joke except when I went back home to Fort Worth and then I was not Reverend, just Carla, and people told me the same inappropriate <laughs> jokes they had been telling me my entire life. And so I get it. When Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth after developing a reputation for being a whiz-bang teacher. They saw Jesus as just a regular guy. Here he is, simply the son of Mary and Joseph made good. I'm sure on that day, Mary and Joseph beamed with pride as they walked to the synagogue with Jesus home for a visit. And when the time came for the scripture to be read, they handed the scroll to Jesus. And he unrolled the scroll and he looked out to see who was there in the synagogue that day. I wonder if his second grade teacher was there. I wonder if he looked out and he saw her and he recalled that her husband drank too much and that he had left town and left her to raise those two kids alone and that they had struggled to make ends meet just barely enough to put food on the table but never enough for the extras that kids need unless someone in the synagogue pitched in to help out. I wonder if he started Thinking about her, before he selected what verse from Isaiah to read that day, and maybe his next-door neighbor was there too, the olive farmer, the one who was there without his wife that day because cataracts had blinded her, and she could no longer bake bread, the kind of bread that she used to sell to the neighbors to help the family budget, and now the family has fallen deeper and deeper into debt. Maybe his friend, the carpenter, was there, the one whose son is in prison for a crime that everyone in the synagogue knows he did not commit. No date has yet been set for a trial, and anguish has moved into the face of his mentor, that carpenter. Well, you and I can only imagine who was there in the synagogue that day by what Jesus selected to read from that scroll. He must have looked out on the hometown folks, the ones with whom there were no secrets, and he must have read to them what he thought God wanted them to know on that particular day. I bring good news for the poor, sight to the blind. The captives will be released and the oppressed will go free. You see, Jesus chooses from two different chapters of Isaiah, They didn't fall together. Jesus is cutting and pasting them together, and Jesus is also deleting the verses that he doesn't think they need to hear, like the one that goes right in there in Isaiah, but he left out about the day of God's vengeance being upon them. After he read, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the synagogue attendant, and he sat down, and all eyes were fixed on him. When the local friends and family looked at their well-known friend, Jesus, what do you think they saw? Why does Luke tell us about this dramatic moment when all eyes are fixed on him? I wonder if they saw a man who truly understood them, who was not so worried about what they had done in their past to mess up, but more concerned about how God might set them free to live a new life. I wonder if they saw in him the kind of hope that they'd been hoping for for such a long time. You see, Luke departs from the other gospel writers by placing this particular vignette right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark and Matthew tell the same story, but they place it in the middle of Jesus' ministry, right in the middle of their gospels but luke places it here at the beginning as an announcement of jesus's mission and purpose a manifesto about who he has come to be to bring good news to the poor sight to the blind freedom to the oppressed luke tells us already in four short chapters that jesus was born in the shepherd saying he was baptized in the river jordan by john He was tempted in the wilderness, and then he began his life of teaching with these words, good news for the poor, freedom for the oppressed. It's a hint, a hint of what's to come, and it stuns the hometown folks into silence, all eyes fixed on him, and what is racing through their hearts and through their minds what did they see? Did they see a hope for the future? The same kind of hope that the founders of our country saw when in 1751 they inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, a quote from the Bible from Leviticus that easily could have fit into Jesus's sermon that day. The quote that says, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Perhaps they saw in Jesus, the hometown boy, a hope for their nation, that finally it would be what they had dreamed it would be. This is how it all begins. This is what Jesus is about. This is what faith calls us to be. Maybe they looked out and saw hope, and maybe they even imagined it was a hope they could join. This past week, I listened to a podcast by a favorite author of mine named Naomi Renkin, and she recounted in that podcast a story that her grandfather told her when she was four years old. It was this story that helped her decide to become a physician, even though at age 15 she had been diagnosed with a life-threatening disease that was certain to cut her life short. In the beginning, her grandfather told her, there was only holy darkness. And then from the holy darkness came a ray of light. But there was an accident, and the vessels containing the light of the world broke And the light was scattered into thousands and thousands of fragments, and those fragments of light fell into the people and the events of the world. And that light and that wholeness remains deeply hidden there now. And then grandfather looked at Naomi and said, we are here because we have been born with the capacity to find the light in all the people and in all the events. We are here to restore the innate wholeness of this world and to make that wholeness visible again. Dr. Naomi Rinkin heard this story and it called her to give her life to the healing arts as a physician. She was recounting this story in the podcast when she was in her mid-80s. It was as if she had been joined to this hope. But maybe on that day, when they looked at Jesus in that moment, what they saw was that there was this great ideal, and yet they were feeling awful, terrible. Maybe they weren't doing their part. Maybe all eyes were fixed upon him because they were simply overwhelmed by the problems of their society. Only a savior could fix this mess they were in, and surely none of them were up to the task. Do you ever feel that way when you hear the news, 14,000 unaccompanied minors in custody at our borders to the south? When you see photographs of the thousands in Sudan and Nicaragua seeking basic human rights and hoping that democracies like ours will advocate with them against the repressive and brutal dictators that they fight? Do you ever feel overwhelmed? It can be paralyzing when we think of all the problems in the world. And so I always look forward to reading this column that is written by Nicholas Christoph every year about the time of the turn to a new year. He argues that actually things are getting so much better statistically for the poor. For example, in 2018, every day, 305,000 people around the globe gained access to clean water and 295,000 received electricity for the very first time, and 620,000 were able to get online. So the religious and the civic and the governmental efforts to change the world are actually working. In my adult life, in the time that I have spent serving here at this church, those living in extreme poverty, which is $2 a day or less, has reduced from 50% of the world's population to 10% of the world's population. Good news for the poor. Release to the captives. Maybe Jesus' hometown folks were sitting there that day with all eyes on him, wondering if life was going to get better, or if the poverty and the misery in their midst was going to linger forever. Or maybe they sat there with all eyes fixed on him, feeling kind of a deep sense of satisfaction. Perhaps they were reveling in the joy over what one person could do. Jake Halpern graduated in 1997 as an undergrad at Yale. He wrote in the alumni magazine that 10 years later, he and his wife moved back to to the area so that she could do a fellowship at the med school. They bought a house in a little community called East Rock. He describes it as an elite enclave of academics surrounded by the poverty of New Haven. He said the haves in this neighborhood were conveniently separated from the have-nots, except on Halloween when the kids from New Haven came into his neighborhood for trick-or-treating. But when his own boys, age seven and nine, took a love of running into their lives, he decided to enroll them in the New Haven Track Club. His boys quickly found meaning and purpose in running with this club. They were coached by a very stern, but gently loving coach. And one day, as their dad, Jake, sat in the bleachers, watching the kids train, along with the other dads sitting there, One of the dads, who was a very affluent engineer, said, you know, this is the best track club in the region. And another dad named Harold chimed in, absolutely the best club. But then Harold said, sometimes it's hard for me to get my boys to the club because I've been having so many car problems. Recently, his car had broken down on the highway, and he never even retrieved it because he couldn't afford the fine to get it out of the pound. Jake quickly learned that this little track club was struggling because they didn't have the adequate practice facilities that a club like theirs needed, especially in the winter, when running in the dark streets was quite dangerous. Jake said, why don't we practice over at Yale? The coach chuckled. You don't get it these boys don't belong at Yale. They don't feel any connection to the university, and the university would never let us use that brand new track. That night, Jake called the athletic director, and suddenly, the club was practicing each week at the brand new track at Yale. And that year, they won first place in the national championships. Sometimes, The poor and the oppressed, the blind and the captives are not those living in another neighborhood. Sometimes they are living in our own homes. Sometimes it is even us longing for freedom and new life. Maybe all eyes were on Jesus because they began to see that God was embracing them The God of heaven was marvelously there, right in their own midst, and any whispered sound might ruin it. Joe Biden shared this story with a group of college students. He told about that day when he got the call that his wife and daughter had been killed in a car accident and his two young sons were in critical condition in the hospital. They were unsure if they would live. Joe Biden had just been elected to the United States Senate a few weeks prior, and he was unable to go to the swearing-in ceremony, so he was sworn in right there in the hospital room where his boys were recovering. He then began the daily four-hour commute to and from, daily, between Delaware and Washington, D.C., four hours round trip each day. He made that commute every day because he said he wanted to be able to kiss his boys goodnight and be there when they woke up every morning. He said it was not a kind of Ozzie and Harriet upbringing, and some nights all he got was just a moment to crawl into bed and snuggle with them. But he came to see during those years that a child can only hold on to an important thought to share with a mom or a dad for maybe 12 hours, possibly 24. But after that, it's gone. But looking back, he said, the real reason he went home every night was that he needed his children more than they needed him. I wonder, I wonder if no one really knows what sermon Jesus preached first. Maybe the first time he preached, no one paid much attention. But after his life was over and they looked back, they saw the sermon that Jesus had preached with his life. And someone said, you know what he did? He lived out those words that we hear from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, sight to the blind, release to the captives. What about us? At the end of our lives, when someone sees the totality of our lives, what verse would they assign to us? What is the message we are acting out with our daily lives? When all our days are over, what did they see in us?